Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Michael Twist to explore an intriguing concept for a new digital currency that would more or less allow money to be grown on trees. Tying finance to positive outcomes for the planet is something that we've touched on before when we talked with Brennan Spellacy for an understanding of carbon credits. And over the past couple of years, I've also been delighted to see a surprising variety of new initiatives that are coming into development and continually stretching the motion towards supporting investment into regeneration, rather than the starker company tick box that carbon credits can be. But of everything I've discovered, Michael's global climate dollar uniquely sets out to make the generation of currency accessible and worthwhile for even the very smallest of sites. From just half an acre to vast expanses of land, this currency is designed to reward land management that supports regeneration of soil and biodiversity and watersheds, all of those natural functions of the land that we each depend upon equally. From that place of inclusion, it encompasses so much of what we've identified as necessary for a regenerative future. Moving towards equality for people, alongside healing the planet. But like all ideas, especially one this encompassing, it remains as little more than an idea until people like you and me engage with it. Michael has spent many years doing the complicated stuff, figuring out and piecing together the legalities and technicalities, and now it's time for him to reach out and ask for your help in bringing the idea to life. Our discussion today helps give an overview of the motivation behind the currency and a general sense of what it's all about. If it leaves you with questions or you're intrigued to make your own regenerative project a part of the currency creation, then do reach out to either myself or Michael to learn more. You'll find contact details within this episode's description. Right, let's get stuck in. Hi Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're talking about global climate dollar, which is this um, digital currency that you're creating. And it's a really exciting concept. You're bringing together the issues of climate change and social inequalities, all within this um, means within money. So it's a very beautiful idea. And I wonder if you could start us off, just introduce yourself and maybe some of the inspirations behind this. Thank you, Helen. Um, I began this journey uh, out of necessity. I had a little accident and needed to find a new purpose in life. Um, in about end of 2015, I had a little accident, nothing too serious, but it's prevented me from doing what I used to do for a living. Um, around the same time, middle of 2016, I, I put together two ideas that money and our environment need a direct connection and how to make that happen sort of is where this evolved from. But there, there was a journey in between. I went back to school. I studied. Uh, I did my cert for in small business. I did a bunch of study and research on regenerative agriculture and environmental, uh, the, what's happening around the world. It was just an amazingly sad story. The more you dug into it, the worse it got. And the idea that there needs to be a direct connection is the backbone behind the creation of this currency. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting um, way to come into this because 
um, there, there's a clear motivation and your eyes have been opened to the problems, but to actually take that motivation further and say, I'm going to do this enormous task of putting together um, a digital currency, that I think is something very special. And um, I'll be very excited to get stuck in and really explore this further with you as, as to sort of how this is coming together. And I think a really good place to start is just an overview of the currency itself. Um, so you've decided to fix the price of the currency. So maybe we could hear your thinking behind that. Okay. Um, the currency needed to be based on something that's been used before. Look, I, I went looking for an economic structure that has a precedence for longevity. And if you look through like probably about the last four to 600 years, one of the most common used was the gold and the silver standard. Um, the system of being able to know what something is worth and provide safety and uh, safety for commerce trading across borders to know what something was valued at when they were handing over paper money. Um, in 1973, we went to what's called a full fiat economic system. It's when the US dollar was detached from gold and yet we still kept using gold as uh, the financial standard. But it, de it freed up the markets to do things they couldn't do before. And the reason it, we we decided to make it stable was because we based the idea on the gold standard, but we took the gold and threw it over our shoulder and put organic carbon in a biodiverse living environment in its place. So really this is different to other digital currencies that tend to fluctuate quite enormously. Yeah, the, the whole point of this was not to create another Bitcoin. Um, the world doesn't need another speculative market. We've got enough of those. Uh, one of the conditions of owning this currency or accepting this currency is that you agree to buy, sell and trade at its known exchange rates. Um, what we did was we pegged our currency to a date and time and then took that date and time and linked it to as many currencies as we could find around the world. It is not a perfect system, but you'll know what it's worth every day in your local currency by what it's worth last week because that's what it'll be worth next week and the week after and we've pegged it to 2039 we pegged it for 20 years starting in 2019 and the currency we chose to base it upon was the us dollar in 2019 and then we just found as many as as many exchange rates as we could um linking back to that currency from that year it just makes it a lot safer for people to trade against and also it means that the people who are doing the work We'll be able to have a solid estimate of how much of our currency they're going to receive. If you know that you've basically doubled what you had last year in organic carbon in your environment and you know what that reward was, the goal is to generate the same reward again or better. But you'll be able to speculate, you'll be able to, not wanting to speculate, you'll be able to want, you'll be able to know what's coming out of it. You'll be able to, you know, plan ahead. And um, there's also an interesting link to a residual payment, but we'll go through that later and Later on, I think um, the how and why that's there will need to cover later. It's a, it's a beautiful reason. Okay, well, this is already clearly very different to what we already have available. In terms of digital currency, there's a lot of, like you say, speculation that um, it, it's inviting people in to almost gamble and invest in this sort of um, 
uncertain trading platform, whereas this is stable, it's dependable. So already the motivation there is very different. Um, how about what that value is? How did you come to a conclusion on what each uh, climate dollar would be worth? Um, it's funny, I, I've never been great at making prices, but this one was the only one I've ever done that came really easily. Um, I took the day, I took 2019 because it was the year I was standing in, or just finished, you know, we were in 2000, I look back at 2019, and I could get the numbers on um, the GDP for the world, how much money did we as a community, as a global community, make um, putting that CO2 into the atmosphere. And then I took the, I did a bit of a Google search and found the CO2 emissions for the year as well, and you divide one by the other, and the answer is actually um, was really quite large. It's um, we made uh, roughly three thousand seven hundred and fifty-seven dollars per ton. That's U.S. dollars for every ton of carbon we put into the atmosphere. That's how much money was generated in the year. Um, it's a big number, and we rounded it up for to make the maths easier. And because we're fixing it in time, um, time has the nice habit of inflation erodes value. So fixing it for 20 years means it's a huge amount of money at the moment, but over time it will become less, but we plan to review again in 2039. So we'll have the chance to reevaluate and readjust if it's needed. But at the moment it, it's an amount that is huge. It's intentionally large to inspire a lot of people to jump on, jump on board, join a gold rush in rebuilding living environments. And it needs to be that the estimates to repair our living environments. I found this, um, I'm not good with names, but there's this this uh, TED talk I watched on um, the estimates on how much it's going to cost to rebuild these living environments. If you if you went out to rebuild all of the world's living environments over the next 20 years, you're going to need somewhere between 100 and 100 and 150 trillion dollars over the next 20 years. And the available funds to borrow at the moment during that period is 105 trillion. Now, imagine that 80% of that is already earmarked for something else. So we're short about $100 trillion of the money needed to restore our living environments before we even start. And that doesn't even allow for things getting worse. Most of the predictions on what's going to happen over the next 50 years aren't pretty. So how do you make it profitable to rebuild these living environments? And if we take the money out of the system we have, how do we support the economy going forward? If you keep taking money out of this, uh, if there's one thing business knows how to, do, how to do, it's add cost onto something. If you, you keep applying costs to big business, they just put it on at the other end and charge us for it anyway. And that is the leading edge to inequality. Less and less people will be able to afford what they really need. It just didn't seem like it was going to solve the problem. We can't take the money out of the system we have. We really needed something that's separate but supports business to keep moving forward as well. I mean, Nick Hamar from the United States, he talks about the, the, the minimum wage in the US and the, the transition they're going through making that happen and how much local economies benefit by allowing that to happen and encouraging it to happen. It encourages growth. It raises the, the standard of living, but it boosts business. And if we can do that on a global scale, we've got a chance to not only address the climate change, accelerate that rebuilding of living environments, but to bring the standard of living up, raise it 
around the world all at once without destabilizing the economy because it'll bring new customers into the markets. And the, the inequality has been growing rapidly for the last 30 years. I mean, we shouldn't have 10 cities in wealthy countries. It's incredibly beautiful, the whole way that you've brought this together with regards to the um, climate change, the emission challenge that we're facing regarding how much we depend upon those emissions. I mean, you've made a very clear connection there that we earn money, our economies are built on burning fossil fuels, of creating the emissions that we're saying we need to reduce. So there's a definite conflict of interest of continuing that um, stability within the economy and achieving our climate targets. So to look at money as a solution that provides something that really offers something completely new because you're looking at money in a new way. And it's evident that this has taken an awful lot of consideration um, of how it all ties together. But let's just hear that figure again. So for one ton of carbon that is sequestered into a living environment, how much is that worth? Um, $4,000 US in 2019. But it's how it's divided up that matters. You, you can't just take $4,000 and throw it into the economy. Um, it's $4,000 per ton goes to the landowner. $1,000 a ton goes to the workers based on the hours that each one has worked. So the third thousand goes back to us for setting up the company and getting it running and put a financial backbone into our company. And the last thousand is divided over the next 100 years as a residual payment. And it's divided the same way. It's $10 a year for 100 years, divided the same way between the landowners, the workers and us. Um, the residual payment is linked back to, goes back to how do you guarantee that the land you've restored will get cared for by the next owner. And those residual payments go with the land. The land owner, when he sells his property, he's selling those residual payments with it. So it'll matter to him who he sells his land to because his future income is directly linked to those that property being cared for. Um, there is one other percentage, but that comes out of global climate dollars share. And that is, um, we wanted to make this, an appealing offer to governments around the world as well. And 10% of all newly minted currency is put into an account in the name of the country where the currency is being stored. So there's like this little honeypot that'll start out small and get bigger over time. But as countries accumulate more and more carbon and their environments grow and the community starts to prosper, we want the governments to be able to prosper as well. Look, there are good and bad governments all over the world and I, I don't judge. That's not my job. There's plenty of people debating what is right and what is wrong around the world and I don't want to play any part in that at all as much as I can. You know, we all got to abide by international laws and whatever they say will happen, I guess. But at the end of the day, we're all in this together. This is the one thing that we are all part of the same community for is this impending disaster that climate change is, predict, you know, is predicted to cause. 
and we're starting to see the effects now. It's really quite spectacular. I mean, I, I'm more aware of the microclimate change that bitumen is hotter than grass and tall grass is cooler at the bottom than short grass. And I let the weeds grow in my backyard and annoy the crap out of my neighbors. But I, I love the flowers and I like the, I like the bees and I love, I, my yard grows um, wild strawberries, uh, not wild strawberries, wild tomatoes because I let the weeds grow. That's, that's fighting climate change to me in my own backyard, my own little microclimate. You know, if I can cast a few more shadows in my backyard, then I'm making a, a positive impact. If I let the grass grow a little longer in my lawn, the ground is cooler underneath and the water, and it holds more moisture. But these are trends that we need to encourage. We need to make it the new, you know, the new normal needs to be biodiversity in your backyard. And if we can increase uh, global wealth and standard of living by making that more common and more acceptable, then then that's a goal worth chasing. It's something worth doing. Yeah, and that's a really good example because it comes back down to the uh, individual's power in terms of adding every single, say that was everybody's backyard, and everybody across the world did that then that adds up to such an enormous impact. Um, so this is, there's a, an awful lot to, to consider with this and to digest so that people can follow along and understand how it all brings together. And I think something that would be really beneficial, there's a lot of ties between carbon and money that we are familiar with through carbon credit schemes. And these are varied and the whole um, subject can actually be complicated in itself because there's there's different markets, there's different um, intentions and rule sets to each one. Um, but there's something here that I think, sort of from a, a simple my my level of understanding point of view, that I could say, well, the big difference that separates global climate dollar from the other carbon credit schemes is the motivation behind them is to stop the oh it's to offset a damaging activity so it's it's allowing a damaging activity to be um taking place and then the the scheme says well let's do something good to offset that whereas what you're creating is a motivation that is directly linked to regenerating the land it's it's supporting the regeneration of land, and I think it would be interesting to hear your take on on how this stands aside from from those other schemes. Well, carbon. When I, when I was reading, I went through and I actually read the the Australian carbon sequestration legislation, and um, you just about need three degrees. This is one of the the whole carbon credits and carbon offsets. I see the point and I see the merit in it that big corporate entities should be held accountable for it and should should do some good with the money they make um the carbon offset schemes and all that but they, when you read the documents that are wrapped around it you can feel that it was written by big corporate for big corporate um and it does serve a purpose i'm, I'm all i'm not against carbon credits at all and from our point of view, we want to be an as well as, not an instead of. If you're doing carbon credits, you can do this as well as far as I'm concerned. I don't know how they all feel about that because they might see a conflict of interest, but we are not carbon credits. We are intentionally not that. Um, 
we have all sorts, like I said, there are a multitude of schemes. The paperwork around them is very complicated. Even just to do, to get involved in Australia in carbon credits is quite an expensive outlay if you're, and the size of your property matters. Um, to do carbon credits, you need a decent amount of land in Australia. You're looking, uh, last price I heard was around $36,500 just to, for the legals, the environmental evaluations, the later evaluations, the contracts, and then the sale of, you're going to chew through $30,000 plus. Um, and that's a big outlay. And if you've, if you've only got 50 acres, um, it's not an appealing option. Or worse, if you've got five acres, there's no point. Not at all. No. You know, it, it's impractical. And that's was, that was one of the, the factors is carbon credits didn't seem to work or look at small, medium, large. They looked at large, medium, large, or um, emissions abatement and those, all those sorts of things. I looked at a lot of what they were doing and thought there's enough people doing that as well. There's enough people trying to work out how to bring down the emissions and the technology is going to be great when we get there. And some of the stuff that's happening is, is going to be amazing. But then there was the other side of that was how are the people in the developing countries going to be able to afford the latest technology if they're still on $2 a day income or $3, they're not going to be able to afford the latest technology. And what we've seen as a trend is we keep selling our old out-of-date stuff off to these third world countries and calling it, you know, we send our, our discarded clothes over and it just causes more problems than what it solves. Secondhand solar panels, they're affordable and they need access to them, but wouldn't they be better off with the latest technology if they could afford to get it? And um, the difference is that that scalability, being able to do it on the small, medium and large scale. I mean, if, you're, if you've got a five acre property or a half acre, like mine's a, I'm on a little half acre suburban block and <laughs> It's gradually getting thicker and deeper and more creative on what I'm growing. I want more food to grow in my backyard. And that, that'll generate some revenue. You go up to the next level where you've got, like, I, I don't know, is five acres to 10 acres sort of around your, your region of the world or getting around Europe, you'll find five and 10 acres. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a, like a small holding. I suppose you'd be um, growing, your, growing some food off that, yeah. Yeah. Well, look at between five to say 50 acres when you're looking at that middle size hobby farm where you've got enough land that if you did something, say you've got a block of land in the absolute middle of nowhere that has no access to markets, it's not practical to get anything to market, but a ton of carbon going into a biodiverse living environment benefits us all equally. You know, the whole world benefits when that ton of carbon goes back into the land. Why shouldn't the people doing the work be rewarded equally? You know, that's that was that moment where you go, wow, that's that's the point. That's the the difference we need is to bring the economy to a global a global realization where we can be in the same market and afford the things we need. You get onto the much bigger stuff. You got the guys with the, like a wildlife park who are always struggling to get enough funding to keep their staff and their community in jobs and care in maintaining that lo the local heritage and local knowledge and not the, the loss, not losing the kids into the cities so that they can get good paying jobs. It's absolutely wonderful in terms of all of the ideas that you're bringing together. The, the, the thing that strikes me with everything you're saying is that it's so 
there's so much potential that I can actually see that there's there's like it, that there's almost like a lot of change for people to absorb. And for me personally, it's hugely in the right direction. I mean, it's the direction that we need for people and for planet. It's just offering a solution that's achievable. There's the seed idea that it's it's an achievable um, an achievable goal, an achievable movement, something we can actually afford to do as a as a planet. Yeah. Like I said before, the amount of money needed to solve to fix all of those living environments is outside of our budget almost. And if you just want to restore an environment that produces no revenue, like Rewilding Scotland is a brilliant thing. There will be tourism, there will be photo opportunities, there will be all the marketing and the hotels and the visiting. But what if you were in a location where no tourists turn up? What if you've got 100 acres that's inaccessible, remote and nowhere, and yet you've, you've taken it on as a challenge to rebuild that entire environment? It still benefits us the same. A ton of carbon into that biodiverse living environment benefits us all the same. And that's what it's about. It's about putting the fundamental that our planet is that important back in, it is. If we don't solve this environmental issue, look, there's plenty of people who are going to bring out some great tech that's going to be absolutely amazing. You know, there's all sorts of amazing stuff. And I, I'm not anti-tech. I, I live in a house. I have a computer and I, I, I walk to or walk into town. Um, but we need our planet to survive. If we don't, you know, get a good understanding and start repairing the damage we've done, um, we end up without a nice place to live. I mean, if I mean, if, if aliens turned up on our doorstep tomorrow, would you would you be proud of the mess we're making or would you be a little ashamed? I mean, yeah, we've got some great technology and some beautiful cities, but there is a lot of uh, clear failing forest doesn't feel like it's a good thing. Not that I'm I'm not one to judge what we're doing environmentally. My goal is to make it profitable to rebuild them, to restore them, for people living within them to care for them as a career path. That that knowledge has value. That's what I'm trying to trying to give give away. I'm 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 not doing this to make me wealthy. I'm seriously not. There's rules inside my company that prevent me from ever, you know, there there will be no million dollar salaries for the for the CEOs of my company. It's not what it's for. Our goal is to basically create a public service company on a global scale that is there to look after planet people in itself so that it can keep looking after planet people. That's what it's there for. You know, there's still a little work to be done on how we're going to govern inside that, that structure, but its purpose is to become a public servant to the world, you know, some something that in 100 years we'll look back and go, that seemed like a really good idea and it's, it's taken us to this place where the grass is greener in those places, that biodiversity has become more common and that the world got wealthier as a community. We talk about being holistic in the way that we approach land in terms of we, we have to tip that mindset around and this, to me, this is the holistic um, money option. It's, it's taken things... Um, instead of treating the symptom, it's it's taking things right back to the root cause, and re re kind of looking at all of that and rewriting it. And I think that brings me to, um, I suppose, a more of a practical question, which is with other um, 
carbon sequestering schemes, credit schemes that are looking at the value of carbon sequestered. It can often be that there is a challenge to considering the value of that within nature itself. So sequestered within soil, uh, that can be a challenge to accept because maybe they're considering it's not permanent or that the validation of that is difficult. So how are you going about that differently? Um, our evaluation, look, technology is going to come along and make all that a lot more effective over time. But when, when I started researching um, environmental evaluation, I, I, I've got a, a talent for reading large, chewy documents. So I went through and I read a bunch of other people's evaluation of criteria and I said about writing my own. And I ended up with this beautiful, like, 13-page, 14-page document that cut, it was detailed, it had everything in it. And I gave it to like three people here and there was a this guy in Uganda I gave it to. The three people here said, yeah, it's great, detailed, well done, good, pat yourself on the back. And and I get to the guy in Uganda and he goes, yeah, it's great, it's detailed, it covers everything beautifully. But nobody here could afford to do it. And that was one of those moments for me where I went, crap, what's the point of making an environmental evaluation, then it sort of rolled into the legislation behind, what's the point of having all that legislation and environmental evaluation if the people doing it can't understand it? So then I just took to it with a hatchet and chopped it up into the smallest, easiest pieces I could make. And still, we, we went from a, a university level evaluation and we brought it down to a citizen science level. And we will stay at that level until everybody can afford to rise that, raise up that ladder, come up that ladder with us. We keep it simple. We want um, basic citizen science evaluation with lots of photo, photos of your project during the year that get posted online. There's your proof of work that they're doing the job, that they're turning up and putting in the effort to change their environment. You get that correlation of a timeline watching an environment change over the years, for better or for worse, because there will be good or bad years. We can't predict where the droughts are, you know, droughts are going to happen, when good or bad things, when fires will come through. But being able to watch and see it change and gradually become better and better means that we can confidently, you know, support these people doing the work. And having a, having a place like where, like I, I told you earlier when we were off camera, is we we're going to have a global map. We're going to have a place for people to post their stories and their timelines of their projects to show what they're doing and how they're changing their environments. Um, the ultimate goal for the currency is because we are planning to use uh, a ledger-style digital currency, which may some people know what that means, um, we can put information inside an individual coin, which will have a longitude, latitude, day, month, year for when the currency was made. And if when you get to your wallet, you can crack a single coin open grab that information, go to our map and see where and when it happened. So you literally be able to see the value and what you've done, what you're holding and when it happened. And look, there's no guarantee that the environment will get better or worse. That's not what we're here for. We're here to support people doing the work that they, that being successful. You know, it's about giving that option, giving them an opportunity and the rest of us just agreeing to use the currency so that they can keep doing it. Like we said, you can't save the environment, you can't save the planet, you can't save us without saving the environment first. I mean, all the technology in the world will be great, but if we don't have anywhere, any nice parks to walk in, it won't be such a nice place.
Absolutely. And so really what you're saying is you're making this accessible. It might not be um, in its final form right now. It's going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to become, uh, but you're making a start rather than standing back from that. And also, in you know, vast contrast to um, other ways of looking at it that would say, well, let's get everything under the microscope. Let's prove how, how are we making sure that that carbon is locked down and that it's stable and it's not going to disappear for, you're actually just saying it. We understand this enough to, to be visual. We understand that the blade of grass and... Yeah, the data is showing that it's, a, it's evolving through the environment so fast. There are so... There, 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 look, a good farmer can grow carbon into the ground. The next farmer could grow it back out again. It, it, it's, it, it's, the soil is like a, it's like a sponge. You can soak it in and you can pull it out if you know what you're doing and if you understand the systems and how how to apply the, the behaviours. Um, this is about, again, it was about that residual payment. It's encouraging good farmers to do good work and then the next owner to continue that work in the same direction to maintain and increase the revenue that goes with the land, that caring for the land should generate value, that it should matter and that it should be something that we get paid to, to do. I mean, it's really that simple that if we don't look after our environment, we're not going to have a very nice place to live. There was another part to it, this analogy I came up with, um, was as, as we go through into this climate change, think of it like a roller coaster, we're on the way down. Um, as we go into decline, it's like a, an environment going into a drought where everybody moves towards the waterholes. People are going to move towards where the resources are, where the jobs are, where the people will move closer and closer to the cities and what's left over. But we, how do you pay people to go back out into that desert and start the process of getting the weeds growing, re-establishing the grasslands, re-learning how to manage the wildlife to grow, regrow the environment, and how do you make that profitable if we don't have a system like this? Yeah. If everything's based around profit-making, these people walking out into those barren environments aren't exactly generating crops there, even if they get paid just to, for helping making the, make the weeds go, grow. I mean, one example I came across, I was talking to uh, the founder from Just Dig It. They've got this amazing thing where they go out and they dig these swales into the soil. And the, the amount that that ground regenerates over the next two, three years is absolutely astounding. And they, they just have to keep raising money to send these guys out to do this work, to raise money, to keep doing this. And, yes, there's a, there's a, a business model there of it will produce more food and it's great for the community. But what if just digging those swales and getting those weeds to grow and getting those plants to grow generate enough revenue for them to do the next season and even more money the following season and even more money the following season, then it becomes a wealth-growing, community-growing um, financial system. And if you let a little bit of money into a community on a regular basis, it's not just them that get wealthier. They go out and they, they, they eat at restaurants. They buy equipment. They use tools. They, they purchase. It, it stimulates the economics, not just their economics. The whole community gets wealthier with it. Yeah. So it genuinely is 
a very holistic point of view. It's not saying we want to make sure we can fix this piece of carbon in this place. It's actually recognizing that that system, the living system, the living environment, it's a moving and growing and evolving dynamic that is the value. It's not the carbon fixed in place, it's the living environment that is becoming healthy, that is the value. And therefore, um, the, the value is the insects that you can see. It's the ability for people to work in a remote location without having to travel vast distances every day. It's about um, all of that tied in together, which is actually when you, you know, if you stopped and really thought about it, there's probably thousands of different benefits that come from saying, let's make each area. Because when we look at, you know, the desertification that has occurred already, and if we keep going in that direction, then that is going to hoard people together. And that, that that's going to um, create, yeah, it, it's creating um, situations where people are homeless, where there is a lot of instability within, um, the, the, yeah, it, it's very unsettling full stop and and there isn't really um there isn't really any part of that that this isn't addressing and so yeah I think that's really important is to sort of recognize that that it's it's at the holistic benefit rather than just um trying to prove any specific thing and that actually doesn't need to look under a microscope in my opinion it's very evident with visual you know, we have we have eyes and we can see that. And I think it's it's lovely that you've recognized and put so much energy into this, that you've you've taken what is um, a broad point of view and put it into something that's so impactful as currency. And um, I think a question and I, I feel like I'm I, I know what you're going to say here, but I'm going to ask it for the, the sort of the benefit of the audience because it may be on their minds it's if we say that currency money is pretty much growing on trees it's so easy and accessible for people to become a part of creating currency then what considerations have you gone through that prevent abuse of that system yeah a any system will have a level of corruption and we as a company can do our best to be honest and we can we can ask that people are honest um we do have we do have rules regarding um making sure you share the wealth if you're the landowner make sure that your staff are um allowed and enabled to log their hours for their share of what's going to be made um we hope that the photos and photographic evidence will definitely help keep uh, keep an eye on that, and we will become more vigilant over time. I see it sort of starting out a bit like the Wild West. What's more important right now is, is it more important that 100% of the people are 100% honest, or is it more important than a large chunk of environment gets restored rapidly over the next 20, 30 years? And we, over that 20, 30 years, work out exactly how we can monitor and maintain this. I was uh, listening in on uh, a podcast earlier today from Planet, which is a global satellite surveillance system that actually watches 
the ground. They can see what you're doing in your own backyard daily and track the growth. Um, it's very accessible technology. And we do ask as part of our, our baseline evaluation, one of the things we ask you to do is put a tarp out on the ground, at least 10 meters square, so that we can see that when the satellite goes over the top, we can see you were at that location on that day to do your evaluation. So we know whether you will know whether you were there or not. We can go and check. But that's about as far as we, yes, it, it is a concern and we will do our best and we will get better at it over time. But I think it's more important that we start than that we, um, you could overregulate it. You could tie them up with contracts that they wouldn't understand anyway, or some of them wouldn't understand anyway, and a lot of them will disobey anyway. I would much rather see this based on honour. I mean, we've got plenty of uh, food stores around my local town, which is run on an honour box, and they've been running for years. Enough people are honest to make the system work. And given an opportunity, most people rise to their best selves, not their worst. And it, look at it the other way. If a bunch of corrupt people want to make a lot of money, they can do it legitimately through us. I mean, they get a hold of big blocks of land in the middle of nowhere and start putting some effort in. Literally growing money on trees sounds like a gr pretty great idea. I mean, there is going to be opportunity and we can sort out the weeds later. We can sort out the people who are doing the wrong thing as we move forward. But it's more important that we start on this than that we have all of these things nailed down 100%. It's just not practical to try and keep it. I haven't seen a single industry or anything that is 100% shiny. And even if they are, the moment you put your hand out and take your, take money, you can, you can be the most environmentally friendly food producer in the world. And as soon as you put out your hand and the money came from uh, – you know, a poorly run coal-fired power station burping gas and, and putrid water into a local river, you're, you're taking money from the system that's destroying the planet anyway. So where, what do you call, where do you go from the, you know, that whole dis destructive negativity that's out there? I'd rather focus on the positive benefits of what we can achieve from all those people that are going to do the right thing. There are enough good people who want to do the right thing. There are enough hippies in our community in Australia that have wanted to be off-grid and lived off-grid for years, and we should be supporting them to do it and understand it and pass that knowledge on and how it's to be done. You know, we should we should be encouraging these farmers who who are so focused on where their crops grow, but they're, 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 the barrier between making money and not making money is getting closer and closer, and yet they've had these hills and ranges in between that they could never make any money from that they can apply a little bit of effort to increase its its viability as a biodiverse living environment and earn revenue from that as well. So they don't just have to focus on the fields, they can focus on the water holding capacity of their ranges and the hills around their property. It's, it's about taking it to, uh, you know, offering more opportunities than you, so much opportunity that you don't need to be corrupt to make money from this. You just have to look around and see where you are already generating revenue. But you've had that standard trees that's been slowly getting taller over the last 30 years. I'm, we're not asking you to do anything different unless you need to. You know, We're not here to tell you how to do it. We're here to reward you for what's successfully working. And if you change to make that happen, great. If what you're doing is working, great. There'll be enough ways to honestly make get our revenue, but it won't be a flood of money. Um, 
yeah, it's 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 going to start out as a trickle in, in first. Yeah, and I suppose the results, if this kind of builds its momentum, the results would speak for themselves. It would be something that is very clear that either the environments over time have become healthier and uh, more biodiverse and um, productive, um, if that would be the ambition. And yeah, so so I think that there's there's again there's a very visual element to it, and uh, it, it it speaks um, volumes just to be able to see. So so time will definitely um, be the the teacher on all of this. And I, it's nice that you're you're sort of using a very um, simplistic almost approach in that you're just accepting the complexity of nature and the wisdom of nature to look after itself, but also integrating the sort of very highest um, offers of technology and the satellites and and all of that. And I think I, I kind of like the way that that gels together. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, we need both. Would you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it's it. What gives us that hope that actually we're at a new opportunity now than what we've ever had before, because we have knowledge and understanding, and we have technology that we've not previously had. So why not sort of just utilize and say we are ready to to create change? Because um, we've kind of reached this point, a tipping point in terms of the problem, but also a tipping point in what solutions are available. And it would be nice to. Maybe you've, you spoke about the different scales of the land that are potentially able to make the most of this. And that sounds like it's really anything from a backyard to a really major project. And um, what types of ecosystems can can benefit? It's anywhere that you can increase uh, organic carbon content above or below ground. Um, so small, medium, large is intentionally, it's about inclusion, not exclusion. We want any project that is making a positive, increasing biodiversity in, impact. I mean, I, I've, I spent about three months watching environmental TED Talks just as a research project. I didn't watch TV. I didn't watch anything else but these TED Talks and more and more. And the amazing talent that's out there doing these, these, these amazing projects and all of them, could do so much more if they had the money. They're all most of them are looking for funding. If they haven't got enough funding, they're 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 not for profits. They're charities. They're um, selling what they can, what they've designed and what they know. They're selling their knowledge to try and fund doing it more. But imagine if just doing it generated the revenue so you could do more of it next year and the year after that. Um, we've got an amazing guy here in Queensland. He's into growing kelp forests and how they're doing that is amazing just just the fluff the fall off from those kelp forests in the locations they have is organic carbon floating down to the bottom of the ocean to you know it, it's long-term sequestered carbon at the bottom of the sea but it brings with it so much life i saw another guy who's uh in water we ask you to bring your own data because but we want again we want photos and all that sort of stuff but that's water projects riparian areas, farmland. I was talking to a guy, um, he was in a, he'd been in a refugee camp in Africa for about four and a half years. He, 
And he found it really amazing that like five, five or six main communities who didn't get along so much where they were from, they all ended up in this camp together and become a community who are all getting along and working together to grow this food forest outside and get this, this food system growing so that they could have more to eat in the camp. And I looked at that as exactly what this project would help. These guys getting involved in the environment just outside their door and starting the process of rebuilding a growing area for producing food. If they took bear land and turned it into a food forest and then take the area around the food forest and turn it into a biodiverse environment, suddenly it becomes a revenue stream and the environmental restoration becomes a way out of the poverty they're in and the situation they're in becomes less terrible and that they become wiser, the knowledge and the wealth that comes from restoring an environment and re-establishing an economic structure within their own community while helping the environment they're a part of. I mean, you're literally talking about they're just growing food, but they're more. They're, they're changing an environment. They're catching that ton of carbon that benefits us all. You know, if they learn how to make that environment grow, it lifts their standard of living, it lifts their food that they're, they're eating, but it also benefits the whole world that they're doing that. And that's the part we, we have to, you know, that's that link. That's that's the the part that we're trying to connect to. It's your own backyard. It's the retiree who, who did really well and retired at 55 and bought 50 acres who just wanted to run horses and start, you know, rebuilding a, this catchment that looked really, you know, he knew there was water there when he was a kid and start working to put that back. That could be anywhere. That could be. You know, those remote regional areas that are struggling to find good paying jobs, suddenly just restoring their environment generates a revenue stream that means their community can afford to do the things they need to do to re reinvigorate youth in their communities by giving them a purpose in life. I mean, the robots are coming. This is one of those, um, <laughs> the paper I sent you, the robots are coming. It, it's not, it sounds like a bad sci-fi joke. But they are. They, they're, the technology is coming. I've seen bipedal robots moving stuff from conveyor belt to conveyor belt. We've got dog walking, you know, vacuum cleaners that can clean your house. We've got all this tech that's coming. What are people going to do that's meaningful for life? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love what's happening in my backyard. I, I take pleasure in laying in the grass that's too long. And, and I, I got all so excited the other day. I found a random pumpkin in my backyard. Gives you an idea how long my grass is. And I had a couple of pumpkin runners going last season and I let them go over winter, which is not popular. But, they, but the fact that there was a random pumpkin in amongst that when I started clearing away the grass, that was one of those moments. It's, it's beautiful. And it's just food laying in my backyard. It's, that pumpkin and that, that grass makes like deeper grass better water holding capacity, insulation for the soil, a lower temperature at ground level, um, more life. You've really made a very bold point to include inequality and addressing inequality as a big part of this. And I think that some examples of that, we you can see them at all different places, all different um, situations. It may be like the farmers at the moment are feeling very... Um, just at a loss, I suppose, with regards to rising prices. There are many farmers that are struggling um, with the, the cost of inputs. There's 
um, obviously transition time needed to, to move to regenerative practices. Um, prices that are dependent upon what the supermarkets will pay. This kind of um, mini economy within itself, it clearly benefits those um, to bring them greater stability. And equally, you could look to somewhere like smallholders in Africa that are really struggling to put food on the table for children simply because of degraded land. And where are they going to look for support? And I suppose that something that is able to offer solution at all those different places is it's very exciting um huge amount of potential inequality is as great a threat to our future as climate change if we look um going back to nick hamar um one more time um he did this ted talk i think it's um the pitchforks are coming and he talks of um, he talks about the situation we're at, where they've got these super rich, and you've got the very very poor, and the gap is getting wider. And he likens it to during the French Revolution, when the rich were living off the cream of the land and taking so much from the the people below them that they rose up and cut cut off their heads. Um, if we're not careful, civil war doesn't solve climate change. We aren't going to be looking at, at replanting forests while people are pointing guns at one another. And we aren't going to be restoring environments while people are starving and need to go and fight for survival. We need to make it profitable for them to learn how to restore their environment to a level where they can stay where they are if they want to and earn a good living doing something we all need done. And if we can achieve that, the inequality will ease away. It's not going to be a flood of money. It's a, it's an interest. It will be an interesting because of the way it's released into the system. It will come in slow and grow exponentially over time. It will grow quite large eventually, but it, that leading edge first couple of years will be reasonably thin and give people a chance to see the adjustment coming. It's not like um, just printing a bunch of money and throwing it out there. It's directly linking it to something we need to have changed. That may, it, You can't just go and print a currency and throw it into a system because that just causes rampant in, inflation. This is about designing something that is aimed at a specific point in time and will grow, but will also uh, evolve with the time. It will, it, will, um, it will ease us into it rather than... You, we can't just flick a switch. We need to transition to a green economy. I mean, the technologies and stuff that are coming are going to be amazing, some of them. But if we don't have the money and revenue in these places that are going into decline, we might not get to see them if we end up in a global civil war over what's left. We all saw too many apocalyptic movies. Maybe I saw too many when I was a kid, but it, I don't want to see that future come to reality. I want to see a future where I, I would be proud of what the world has become. Where, you know, how else can we reach equality if we don't all get behind one thing that we can agree on? And we all know that the world needs our living environments. It's becoming incredibly obvious that we have, we're making the change that's leading us in the wrong direction. We need to be the driving force behind that change to take us in the right. 
towards that biodiversity, bring back those animals we're losing. I heard a horrible number. We're losing 10 species a week of domesticated animals. The domesticated species, because we're, we're reducing uh, down to the most productive animals, the most productive versions of the animals. So these other breeds are just disappearing. And these are specialists that were beautiful for the environments they were from. They're just not so commercially viable. I don't want to see them lost because that's like losing languages is such a terrible sin. I mean, the language, the a way a person speaks impacts how they reason and evaluate. And we need more creativity, not less. We need people to have their own languages and have their own knowledge. And because they offer a different point of view, we need to save it all. You know, you can't, yeah, you can't just let it all wither and die on the vine when there's a better alternative. If there's a way out of it, just it's worth trying. Look, I mean, I'm fine. If this isn't the version, the next one will be better anyway. So I, I'm quite happy to be the guy who starts and makes an effort. And if somebody does it better, that'll be fine with me as well. It, it, there, there's just so much potential in what this can bring. There is, absolutely. It's it's so huge, the potential. And you you have been working, what, about five years now? on this so it, it's a it's an awful lot of um time and research that you must have put into this has there been anything surprising in terms of what's concerned you as you've as you've studied and and learned along the way um i, I was really I, I got a little depressed when i started researching the environmental stuff that was surprising how bad it was and how we really are on a serpent that's eating its tail that our you know there was that was one of those moments i went wow and if you're if you're happy and enjoying life don't go and research it because it's not going to help but um i think one of the another another moment was that time in the middle of the savior institute and realizing that holistic management and that concept of how to manage on scale um that we are one whole that was a moment for me that everything is interlinked we are one community and everybody knows it now and the last one that really rang for me was that that moment where i went uh, i said um nothing truly large scale has ever been achieved that wasn't profitable in the like the last 200 years we, we couldn't have clear felled the forests if there wasn't money in cutting down the trees. We couldn't have nearly hunted those whales to extinction if there wasn't money in the oil. So therefore, if the driving force behind the largest changes we've seen, even the last 30 years, we've got a, a timber harvesting machine out here in the forestry that can cut down a pine tree every 27 seconds. I mean, that's driven by profit. So restoring the environment, restoring the world we live in is going to need to be based in economics at some level if we can do it, take it, and become a part of the solution at scale. It's going to have to be driven partly by economics at some point. And that, that idea that you know, nothing large scale has ever been achieved that wasn't profitable, that was one of those, those little phrases I wrote in a moment of haste that really sort of run true. It made me realize, look, I could have gone and got another job, could have gone and got a job somewhere, I'm sure of it. But it was like, 
like having a child, if I didn't look after it, if I don't look after it now, it, it'll just wither and it could die. And I couldn't do that. And I needed something. I'm slightly hyperactive. I need something to go work on and work around. And this was it. This is the one thing I could find and be a part of and, and love, you know, I fell in love with it. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. You've said it yourself. It's a beautiful idea. It doesn't have to be the best. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent right. It just has to be what we need it to be now. And it can grow into what it needs to be in the future and still support us going towards that, that future we, we all would like to have, you know, one where the kids are going to have clean water to drink, plenty of food and time to be kids and be a part of the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I think really powerful to say, um, we can't achieve anything without the motivation of money in some degree. And it's, it's not necessarily the nicest acknowledgement, but it is so incredible what we can achieve with our ingenuity when there is that motivation behind it. The uh, machinery and the discoveries that we've made all in the, the plight of building and securing an economy. And yeah, if we can tie that into something that has the the biggest challenge and the biggest need that we've ever really had which is looking after our planet and and turning this this crisis around then that has to be a tool that that really is gonna gonna be something that that can spark that change and um and and does that from a new direction um everybody i talk to love the idea it's just a matter of raising that raising the revenue we need to go to that next level and that's just stepping stones along the way that will come together yeah any final last thoughts before we uh, wrap things up it's a lot to unpack and i know that it is a massive amount of information but i am so grateful for your time and it, i'm not doing this for anything other than it's a really good idea you can't it can't wither and die it has to have its life and even if it's life is just to breed a better version of what we need to come next, the point is that it still needs to happen. Yeah. And this is a, it has so much potential. We're, we're, we're growing as a planet and as a community that we don't want to be a part of a society that's going to be fighting over the scraps. We want to be a part of a global community that's helping restore everything and maintain and bring that better future to us. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time and for all of your efforts in in putting this together. It's like literally all of those years of um, deliberation and work that you've put in because it is, as you say, it's it's holding so much potential. And I think there's many solutions wrapped within this idea. Um, so hopefully we can uh, we can share this. And I suppose that's that's the the next step forward is getting the information and the people engaged. So um, very best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, I'll be joined by Sarah Spencer to learn about her wonderful work with Think Like a Tree that brings the principles of nature into our everyday thinking as a tool for healing, for collaborating, for developing within all different aspects of our lives, both personal and professional. 
and even as an approach being taken within more and more organisations. New episodes are added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. And let's keep figuring this all out together.